While it may be true that any vacation is a good vacation, some vacations are better than others, right? Some vacations are better, at least in my mind, I love the kind of vacation where you get away and the longer you're away, the better it gets. Because sometimes I'm on vacation, I'm thankful I can even have vacation, right? It's amazing the world we live in and the country we live in, but I'm on a vacation and the longer the time goes, you know, day six, day seven, time to go home, it's like I'm dying to go home. If I could only be at home. Happens a fair amount. But there's something about that kind of vacation where the longer you're wherever you are, the better it gets. You, you, you know the places to go. You know the walks to take. You know the places to get coffee or whatever it, whatever it is. You settle in. And you want to extend your stay. I could only stay for a few more days. We had one of those kind of vacations last summer. We were in Colorado. And it's like, I, now I know where the, the best bike trails are. And now I know my routine and what I want to do. I want to stay extra, you know? We didn't. It was kind of a bummer. But I feel like that this morning, and I've been feeling that way about our study of the gospel according to John. I want to extend my stay. It's like I know where the cool paths are. I'm comfortable. And it's, as someone said to me this morning, oh, are you going to re-preach John now that you have it figured out? It's not, it's, it's not that bad, but... I want to stay a little bit longer, so we're at least going to stay there today, okay? So what we're going to do this morning is look at the gospel of Jesus according to John and, and at least look at some, some big takeaways, if you will. So before we leave, some things that really stand out that I hope you never forget, that I'll never forget, I have a list of five of them this morning as we go from chapter one to the very end, some, some big gospel takeaways, if you will, from John's gospel account. And I won't promise that, that I won't extend the stay just a little bit further. Um, we'll see how that goes. Uh, but I do promise that next Sunday, which is the 24th of December, Christmas Eve, we will talk about the birth of Jesus. Okay? We will do that. It might be in John, and it, it'll be hard to find in John, but we will do that next week for sure. So, this morning... Extending our stay just a little bit, five big takeaways from the gospel according to John. Number one, number one is Jesus is the point. Jesus really is the point. In John chapter 1, look there at verse 29. This is John the Baptist. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, we're going to come back to that, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, Jesus really is the point. He's the point of all points. Behold, interestingly enough, it's a command. So here's John the Baptist, and he sees Jesus, and he tells everyone, he commands them to behold Jesus. In other words... Look at Jesus. In other words, know the truth about Jesus. In other words, He's the one. He really is the one. Behold, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who brings forgiveness. He's the one who brings reconciliation. He's the one we've been waiting for, even if we don't know we've been waiting for Him. Which I've grown so fond to say. Behold. That's what I want to say to you. Behold Jesus. Look to Jesus. And it makes sense that you would look to Jesus and that would be His command if Jesus truly is God's way that He chose to show His love for the world and to provide redemption. Behold Jesus. Right? By way of contrast, we want to kind of tell God, and here's how, what I think love is, and here's how I think love should look, and here's how I think God should love. John says, behold Jesus! This is how God has chosen to show His love, by giving His unique Son to provide redemption, that whoever would trust in Him would have eternal life. Chapter 3, verse 16, we know it. Chapter 3, verse 18, and that if you don't, there's condemnation. That's how God has chosen to extend His love to us. That it has to go through His Son. Okay? So, behold 
Jesus. Know Jesus. Look to Jesus. Because Jesus is, I don't care what your question is, Jesus is the answer. Not really, but you get the idea, right? It's why we say things like that. It really is ultimately about Him. I love it that that is the, the command that starts off our book, the imperative that starts off our, our book, and it's loud and clear. There are lots of reasons why, but that's enough for this morning. Second big takeaway from our study of the gospel of Jesus according to John. Notice I say it that way every time. Probably driving you nuts by now. After 47 weeks, I think it is. I'm probably off a little bit. The gospel of Jesus according to John. It's not the gospel of John. Who's John? A guy that died and stayed dead. Good news of John. You get the idea. It's just a little bit of a nitpicky thing. It's the gospel of Jesus according to John. Behold the Lamb. John has not been saying, Behold me. I'm St. John. No. Behold the Lamb. He's the one who takes away the sin of the world. Glad I got that off my chest. Number two. I hope you always remember that though. And I hope you don't criticize me when I say, turn to John. It's fine, right? Anyway. Number two, Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the fulfillment. And we're going to look at this on on two levels throughout John's gospel account. Jesus is the fulfillment of explicit prophecy. But he's also the fulfillment with things that aren't so explicit, but they're actually there. He's the fulfillment of specific prophecies. Let's look at some of those. Super important. Then let's look at how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament shadows. And the substance, to quote the Apostle Paul, belongs to Christ. Okay? So some of the prophecies, we won't look at all of them, but go back to chapter 1 with me if you would. If you go back to chapter 1, you'll see in verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. So even John, who's the forerunner, who's pointing to Jesus, is pointing to Jesus because that's prophesied. It's supposed to be that way. How about chapter 2, verse 17? If you turn over to that page, or scroll to that page. 2.17, His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So it's the aha moment of why he would be cleansing the temple. Oh, that's actually prophesied of Messiah. How about chapter 6? Moving right along. There would be another one. Chapter 6, verse 46. Some of you still have paper Bibles. I can hear them. It's amazing. I like to preach from a non-paper Bible and I like to read a paper Bible so I can write. 646. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. From Isaiah 54, Jeremiah 31. Let's skip a bunch now and go to chapter 12. Chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 37. Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. There's the connection. We're going to skip a little bit and then go down to verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So we've got more prophetic kinds of connections given to him. We're not going to read the actual text there because we're going to move ahead and see more connections. How about chapter 19, verse 24, getting toward the end? Chapter 19, verse 24, it says, 
They cast lots for his clothing. Then halfway through the verse, this was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided garments among them. And for my clothes, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Then drop down to verse 36 with me, if you would. For these things took place. This is 36. That the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And there are more and they are vital. But I I didn't just want to... I at least wanted to draw attention to them. Don't want to downplay that. So I drew attention to it. But here's what I want to upplay. Because most of us in this room who are familiar with the Bible very much, we know, oh, prophecy, fulfillment, prophecy, fulfillment, prophecy, fulfillment. And that's really important. But lots of us don't realize that there's more to it. He is the fulfillment of explicit prophecy but he is the fulfillment of all of the shadows, if you want to use the other word, all of the types. So I was trying to explain this to one of my kids today and and saying, okay, let's think about shadow and substance. Well, that didn't really work. Shadow and reality. Maybe that doesn't work either. The, 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 The shadow and the actual person. And then they're starting to put the pieces together. I said, if I'm walking down the hallway and you see my shadow, you know what? You know I'm coming. Now, is the shadow me? No, the shadow isn't me. But you know when you see my shadow, I'm about to arrive. If you want to use the other words, you have types in the Old Testament and antitypes. I didn't try that this morning in the car on the way in. The Old Testament the Bible tells us, like in the book of Hebrews, is filled with shadows. Okay? It's filled with types. But the substance, the significance, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians, belongs to Christ. Sometimes we don't realize that. We think the stuff in the Old Testament is more real. Because then we move to Jesus and He's spiritual. But the reality is, according to the Bible, the most real thing is Jesus. And you say, but I I think about the temple, that seems a lot more real. In actuality, that's meant to be a shadow. It's intended to be a shadow. The substance belongs to Christ. And so when we read through John's Gospel account, it's amazing how much connection there is. Shadow? Oh, substance. And... I want to encourage you with that. I want to encourage you to read your Bible that way and think in those terms. It's amazing, amazing, amazing to see this. He really is the fulfillment, not just of explicit prophecies, but of all that was anticipating Him. So by way of a sample, let's start in chapter 1, then we'll go to chapter 2, then chapter 3, then chapter 6, then chapter 7, then chapter 8. I'll read fast. But if you haven't caught this before, I'm, I'm inviting you to, to, to see him as the fulfillment that he really is. Even in chapter 1, where it says in verse 14, a familiar text, and the word, the word from, chapter, from verse 1 is referring to him, Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And many of you know this, but I'm drawing your attention to it. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and tented among us. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's not a mistake. That's on purpose. How is it that God, in a visible kind of presence way, in the Old Testament early days, manifested Himself? Well, it was in the tabernacle, the tent. So there's no accident. It's on purpose. Here Jesus came and God is dwelling among us. He's tabernacling among us. Type, or excuse me, type, antitype, ultimate reality. Then we go to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, you probably know where I'm going with this. But in chapter 2, verse 19, it says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in the Old Testament, you go from tabernacle to a more permanent dwelling, the temple. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore 
he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Tabernacle, temple, ultimate temple where you meet God and you offer God worship. It's in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Shadow, substance. I hope you never read your Old Testament the same way again. I'm inviting you. I'm giving you permission to think about Jesus when you're reading the Old Testament. Maybe I'm saying it that way because in some circles, you're told that's not right, you shouldn't do that. Well, I think he's right. I think he's right in light of Second Corinthians because unbelievers read the Old Testament not thinking about Jesus with a veil over their eyes. Read Second Corinthians. It's in anticipation of Jesus. He's the ultimate fulfiller, if you will. By the way, this is different from allegory. We're not finding hidden meanings in making things up. It's by design. The eternal word. Remember, Jesus pre-exists tabernacle, pre-exists temple, pre-exists creation, according to chapter 1. So all along, before there ever was a tabernacle, before there ever was a temple, before there were any shadows, you have the eternal word who was planned and on route to coming here. So it all makes sense. This is, fan- this is amazing. John chapter 1, sorry to go backward on you a little bit. He's the Lamb. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Oh, Passover Lamb from Exodus chapter 2. Chapter 18 explicitly has him as the Passover Lamb. Again, I'm reading the old shadows, Passover. Why did that happen? By divine design, ultimately to prepare the way for us to see substance. John chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus as the fulfillment of the serpent image. Verse 14, chapter 3, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And then I cross-reference chapter 5, verse 46. We won't go there. Jesus says, Moses wrote of me. Yeah, in anticipation. And back in Numbers, when Moses held up the serpent, the symbol, and the people were physically healed. And here it comes Jesus, and he says, you know what? When I'm lifted up to the cross, I'll bring ultimate healing. Moses wrote about me in anticipation, in shadow form. Substance is me. It was pointing toward me. John chapter 6, verse 47 to 51. He's the bread. Chapter 6, verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread. We eat bread to have life, sustenance. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And he uses the the, the connected imagery of believing and eating. But why, 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 why was the manna image there? I know why ultimately... It's pointing to the ultimate one who fulfills these things. John chapter 7, something else. Another connection with the feast. John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And then he says, whoever believes. So he's using that synonymously. But here, with the great feast and with the water and all the cleansing and all the washing and all the fountains and all of the even Jewish tradition, he's like, you know what? It's ultimately about me, this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, not to mention the other ones. It's me. Come to me. We won't take the time to go to chapter 3, even chapter 4. These new covenant realities that are promised in the Old Testament, uh, like in Jeremiah 31, of cleansing and the washing and the water. 
chapter 8, verse 12. Chapter 8, verse 12, again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Again, if this is Feast of Tabernacles, the Jews had their festival of lights. Jesus says, oh, oh, the lights? Perhaps symbolic from God coming from heaven or speaking to the people in the Old Testament from heaven, which is why they're celebrating this feast, the pillar of fire. And he says, I'm the light. Ultimately, it's about me. Okay, that's enough. Maybe you're saying, why are you so excited about this? I'm not that excited about this. Maybe it's because you've seen it and you've been there, done that, and this is like old news to you. But it's not really old news to me. I've read books. I've been encouraged by teachers to not do the very thing I'm encouraging you to do. And maybe that's why I'm excited about it. Almost to say, make sure when you read the Bible, don't look for Jesus. How bizarre. How bizarre. I'm going to encourage you to read the Bible and look for Jesus. I don't mean in an allegory. I don't mean because of your creativity and find, you know, under every rock. But Jesus himself, in John especially, is making connection after connection after connection, showing us, again, like Paul explicitly says, the substance belongs to Christ. Yeah, but, but, but if you tell people that, they're going to go crazy and they're going to do allegories. Let the record reflect, I'm encouraging you not to allegorize. <laughs> it's amazing. I'm the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the temple. I am the tabernacle. All of those things, which is more real? Not those things. Me. It's me. I bring fulfillment. There has been a plan. And all along the plan has been to have these things be arrow pointers. It's about the sun. It's about the Son. I love it. I love this reality. How about about number three? Number three. Jesus is the successful Redeemer. Jesus is the successful Redeemer. Chapter 6, chapter 10, chapter 17. Probably my, I can't say that. I want to say they're my favorite chapters in John. 6, oh, 8 is good too. 10 and 17 give us this picture of Jesus not as the one who really, really gave it a good college try. We'll see what happens. No, chapter 17 even informs us that Jesus is sent here by the Father to redeem those who were given to Him by the Father. Oh, then, I I like chapter 14 and chapter 16 as well. It's applied by the Holy Spirit. This is the the plan of redemption by the triune God that that started in eternity past, according to Ephesians chapter 1. This This is a perfect plan that is going to succeed, that is going to happen. It's amazing. This is why I like to tell people, Jesus is even better than I thought he was. How about chapter 6, verse 39? These are so strong that some people, some Christians don't even like them. Because they're kind of scary. You're scaring me, it sounds like this was all planned. You're scaring me, it sounds like he he knew he was going to succeed. You're scaring me, he looks a little too sovereign. He looks a little too powerful. People don't ever say that, but you kind of get that impression. I invite you to be afraid. 
Be very afraid. He's the one who does what he says he's going to do and has a plan and it happens. Better than we even think he is. I had no idea this stuff existed when I was a Christian, when I first became a Christian. You don't have to know this to be a Christian, but it's amazing to know. How about chapter 6, verse 39? And this is the will of him who sent me. Jesus is saying that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Nothing. But raise it up on the last day. So he's looking to the last day. So what he does has a consequence that's a sure consequence for the future. Future resurrection. But raise it up on the last day. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father. That, how about this? Everyone. Notice there's, there's not a, a, a creek or a crevice or a gap for failure. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. He is the successful Redeemer. What He plans happens. I can't relate. (laughs) Right? No matter what, it happens. It's no wonder we believe in assurance. Chapter 10, verse 15. Chapter 10, verse 15, and then we'll look at 17, and then then, then we'll move on. 10.15 says, Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, so this is wrapped up in their relationship, and I laid down my life for the sheep. And then in my Bible, I, I I always draw an arrow. Every Bible I get my hands on and never read, I draw an arrow between verse 15 and verse 28. So he lays his life down for the sheep. Chapter 10, verse 28, I give them eternal life. So his laying his life down leads to eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's scary if it doesn't match what you believe. (laughs) That's encouraging and wonderful if your belief gets into line with reality. If Jesus died for you, you can't be lost. Assurance. Dangerous. It's dangerous. Brings up all sorts of questions. If he is the successful redeemer, he didn't provide a possible redemption, but an actual redemption, a redemption that redeems, right? That poses all sorts of questions. But the best question that it answers is, is Jesus the one to behold? And the answer is yes. It's no wonder John says what he says. He lays his life down and he loses none of those he lays his life down for. It's it's hard to manage a deity like that. It's hard to keep him under your thumb. He's not very domesticated. Maybe he's dangerous. How about chapter 17? 17 is kind of the backdrop to all this. We won't read the whole thing. But how about verse 3? And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you, Jesus says to his Father in his prayer, verse 4, I glorified you on earth. How about this? Four awesome words. Having accomplished the work. I mean, that's, that's, if we did chanting here, that would be worth chanting. But it would be blasphemous because we didn't do it. Having accomplished the work. When Jesus came here, he was given a mission. He agreed to carry it out. And he, having accomplished the work, sure, done, successful. It's amazing. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. 
How about verse 6? I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. Again, it goes back, and we're going to, for the sake of time, stop there. It goes back to having accomplished the work. I did what you called me to do. Mission accomplished. Redemption complete. I think it's absolutely amazing. We celebrate the birth of Jesus, the incarnation. Well, the incarnation happened because the Son, in eternity past, again, I'm relying on Ephesians chapter 1 a little bit, in eternity past, agreed to do a work sent by the Father, accomplished the work, applied by the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit's work as well, chapter 14 and chapter 17. When you read John, you see that he is the successful Redeemer. I once heard a pastor say, why in the world do we tell unbelievers to read the Gospel according to John? And the point was for shock value. But the, but the point was, he's saying, there's not a book in the Bible that emphasizes the sovereignty of God in salvation more than John. It's a plan. It's carried out. It's executed. It happens. It's as good as done. He loses none of them. Maybe we should recommend unbelievers read something else because they're going to get run off. Oh, but we could answer that in John where Jesus says, my, you know where I'm going? My sheep hear my voice. Ah, it's, it's good to have believers and unbelievers read the gospel according to John. In fact, we know John wrote it so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ. But we've learned enough from Jesus and John to know that belief ultimately is a gift from God. He is the successful Redeemer. Born of a virgin. Just think about when you, when you think about Jesus' birth and coming to earth. That, that's the fruit of the agreement reaching back in eternity past. It's exciting. It's amazing. And how about this? It's, it's for us. So certain it makes us uncomfortable. But I would suggest to you that we should move from not being comfortable to praising. I don't know how all this works, God, and now I have more questions than I had. But I do know what you've said. Jesus didn't mumble. Jesus knew how to be articulate to the point where they crucified him. And I, I don't know all the answers, Lord, but I know enough to know now that you are a great, great God who saves mightily and effectively. So we, should, we serve him and we worship him. Number four. And five is super short, I promise. Okay? Number four. Jesus, we learn in John, we look at the whole thing, is where God's law and love make sense. Okay? I saved this for point number four so we would all be awake enough. It's now 11.15, 11.17. You've got you to hang in there and think with me about this. I, I, I think it'll be worth it. When you look at all of John, you see in Jesus, we clearly have sense made of law and love. And if we need to make sense of anything, in my opinion, we need to make sense of law and love. Outside of the church and inside the church. It's one of, one of the greatest hindrances to understanding Jesus and the gospel and how salvation works is we're, we don't, we don't, we're, we're clueless. 
ask yourself this question, or ask someone else this question, because I don't want to, I, I don't want to insult you. Ask someone the question, are law and love the same thing? And most people will tell you a resounding no. Are love and law, or law and love the same thing? No. When in reality they are. I'll show it to you. See, what we think is, if we know anything, if we're thinking, sometimes we're not, Old Testament law, New Testament love. It's not true. It's not true. It's absolutely not true. Because in the Old Testament you have law and you have love. And in the New Testament, I don't need to walk over there, you knew what I was going to say. And in the New Testament you have law and you have love. And Jesus talks clearly about these things, and we've got to get this clear in our minds and understood, or we're quite honestly not ever really going to understand the gospel and understand Jesus and understand our human responsibilities. And so what we end up seeing is we see a clearness of sorting out both and how the two work together. Maybe before we go to the text in John, though, I'm going to go to the passage from Jesus in Luke's account, Luke chapter 10, if you've been at Omaha Bible Church before, you maybe knew I was going there. But let, let's look at Luke chapter 10 and, and understand from Jesus, law is love and love is law and that creates a problem. Which is why we need Jesus to solve our problem. And then we're actually called to do the right thing, which is to obey the law, which is to love. That's where we're going. But hang in there if you're... If you're Look, look at Luke chapter 10 with me, if you would. How about 10.25? And behold, a lawyer, okay, a, a Bible expert, not as in an attorney that we would think of. And behold, a lawyer, expert in the law, stood up to put Jesus, him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And I would encourage you to remember that's the question. Eternal life. Verse 26, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Okay, that's, that's Leviticus 18, that's Leviticus 19, that's Deuteronomy chapter 6. Then verse 28, he said, and he said to him, Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will what? You will live. And we know the kind of live he means because the question was, was what must I do to gain eternal life? So, let's have it straight in our minds. What do we do to gain eternal life? The answer, Jesus says, what do you think? What does the law say? Love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm kind of paraphrasing. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the law says. The law says, love God and love neighbor. Perfectly. Heart, soul, mind, strength. All of your being. Even motives, right? Law says love. What does God want everybody to do? He wants everyone to do what we should do. And that's love Him as the one true God. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And love those made in God's image. And as long as we do that... We go to heaven. Right? Because we don't sin. First John says sin is lawlessness. You could put it in other terms. Sin is not loving. So, this is where I like to joke and say, so everyone who has done this their whole life, heart, soul, mind, and strength, love their neighbor as themselves, let's form a line over here. And if we're honest, then we agree with God because God says no one is without sin. Jesus teaches that as well. We're going to have no one in the line. No one in the line. Except one, right? Except one. And his name is Jesus. And in John's gospel account, as clear as the nose is on my face, and it's pretty clear last time I checked, as clear as can be, Jesus loved his Father perfectly even as the incarnate one, as one of us. And he loved his neighbor 
perfectly. For example, we can just look at a text or two. For example, chapter 14, verse 31. We could look at chapter 13, verse 1 as well. Chapter 8 as well. Chapter 14, verse 31. Just choosing one example. We could look at the whole, but there's just one text. For I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Now, I like not just using one verse. I like looking at the whole thing, but there's one verse. Not just as the eternal word, but as the incarnate one. Love the Father. He's fulfilling the law to quote him from other books other than John. And we know that this is what happens according to chapter 8, verse 28. Again, you might have to keep, keep your, your, your mind turned on and, and really, really think here. Um, not because it's not there, but because you've got to really be thinking in these terms. The do this and live. How about chapter 8, chapter eight verse 28? 8.28, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, referring to crucifixion, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. How about 28? And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. And we talked about that at length in, in resurrection. He's not going to leave him alone. He won't let his Holy One undergo decay. I know that I did what the Father sent me here to do. I've done everything right, even as the incarnate one. I've done, I've done everything right, and so the Father won't leave me dead. I will be raised. To, to use the Apostle Paul's terminology, I will be vindicated. By resurrection, not staying dead, it's proof that Jesus did everything right. That Jesus obeyed His Father, or excuse me, loved His Father and loved fellow human beings. The resurrection proves it. The resurrection proves it. Now that's a long way for us to say, Jesus sorts out the issues, clarifies the issues, solves the problem of love and law. Jesus loved his father and neighbor perfectly, which is what we're all called to do. And by being raised from the dead, by not being left alone by the father, he's proven to be the one who fulfills the law and he's the victor. And that, by the way, is how he can say to people like you and me, believe in me, trust in me for eternal life, which has been emphasized in John's Gospel account. It's eternal life, eternal life, eternal life, eternal life, eternal life, eternal life. Who gets eternal life? The people who get eternal life who do this, they love God and love neighbor. Is that, that's not too hard to understand, is it? Shouldn't be. Oh, but one more thing. What does Jesus then tell his disciples to do? Chapter 13. He says, love. He says, love. He says, now, do the law. This is how you're going to be known by other people. That you love one another. That you are law-abiding. Right? N not so you can gain eternal life, but because you have eternal life. All along, throughout, it's believe in me for eternal life. Without any question, that's what he says again and again and again. Believe in me for eternal life. But then he turns around and says to those who are believing in him for eternal life, do the law. Do this so you will live? No, not there in chapter 13. It should already be clearly understood. Do this because you, you do live. Chapter 13, verse... 34. Chapter 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you. And with the risk of being struck by lightning where I stand, I'm going to suggest to you it's not a new commandment. Hang in there. I'll explain. Jesus is a new commandment I give to you. And I want to say it's not new. I know it's not new because it's from Leviticus. 
I know it's not new because it's in, Jude, it's in Deuteronomy. It's all over the place. But hang in there. It's new in a sense. A new commandment I give to you, 34, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's not new. It's not new. It's not new. It's not new. It's all over the Old Testament. That's the law. When you boil the law down, love God and love neighbor. And here Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you guys a new commandment that you should love one another. And they can say, it's not new. That's just what God's law requires. But it's new when it comes to perspective, we might say. It's new when it comes to position, we might say. Sometimes new is also used because it's something that comes from heaven. But the the, the reality is, if they're believers in Jesus for eternal life, their position is new. Their perspective is new. Now, please get this, now you don't have to do that to gain eternal life, which is what the law says. Now you have eternal life because Jesus did this, right? So that we could live. Believe in Jesus for eternal life throughout John. The whole thing is believe in Jesus for eternal life. And here Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new commandment. That's not a new commandment. Maybe I could push it this way, but you're new in me. So now I want you to act the right way. I want you to be law-abiding. I want you to love one another. But you're loving now out of a new relationship that I have or you have with me and you have with the Father and the Spirit through me. It's vital that we get it. It's vital that we get it. We're, we gain eternal life. This is why we would say by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Period. Not by loving. Not by obedience to God's law, which is love. But when we gain eternal life by believing in Jesus, He calls us to do the right thing. And the right thing, the, the, the essence of right thinking, right? Is love. This, by the way, is one of the reasons why we had a Protestant Reformation. to sort out some of these things because the Bible's filled with commands and it's filled with promises. And sometimes we treat it like it's alphabet soup. You stir it all up and it's like... I, 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 and, and if you read the Bible, it's like commands in the Old Testament, promises in the Old Testament. Commands in the New Testament, promises in the New Testament. I can't really make sense of it. I guess the gospel is just you know a new law. Maybe it's easier. No, with, with razor clarity by God's grace, Old Testament and New Testament teach, according to Jesus, do this and you'll live for eternal life. And you say, I'm smoked. And you are smoked. Do this and you'll gain eternal life. Have fun with that. Right? I mean, think about it. Love God perfectly, love neighbor perfectly, which is what God's law requires, and then eventually you'll, or if you do that, you'll have eternal life. Oh, by the way, you're united to Adam, so really have fun with that. Right? You're smoked before you even light up. Right? But we have the true and better Adam. We read about him in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We read about him in Romans chapter 5. And he comes and does this so that we can live. And I love it that John talks about eternal life, eternal life, eternal life, eternal life. Cross-reference to Luke chapter 10. Love God, love neighbor, and you gain eternal life. Can't be done. Except by one. Except by one. That's why we're called to believe in Jesus to rest in Jesus because he did this. I did the work you gave me to do, chapter 17. That's why I love to say salvation is by works. I did the work you gave me to do. It's not by our works, but it most definitely is by his.
Finally, number five, and I told you it would be short, and I promise it will be short. Number five, Jesus is where you must look for eternal life. Jesus is where you must look for eternal life. This is John 14, 6. This is the one and only one who ever did this so that we might live. Not much else needs to be said about it. You could do a nice little study on life and eternal life in John and it's all over the place plus all the images plus all of the, the, the analogies and it's all about trusting in Him for eternal life. It's why John said in chapter 1, Behold! Look to Him! He's the one, the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. You must look to Him because He and He alone is the one who is the Savior. I like to also say, even when it's hard, I like it that Simon Peter understood this. John chapter 6, they're all leaving. They don't like Jesus. You know, Jesus Jesus is talking about sovereignty. Jesus is talking about how, how He loses none of them. And Jesus is successful. And Jesus isn't manageable. And Jesus isn't the one that we created in our own image. I don't think Jesus would, would, could ever be, you know, be, be our pastor. And I'm paraphrasing in John chapter 6, they're leaving. The disciples are leaving in droves. I like what Peter says. When Jesus says, you want to go too? How's that, by the way, for marketing? John 6, 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Even when it's hard to follow Jesus, because sometimes it's hard to, hard to follow Jesus. Welcome to your worst life now. Okay? This is your worst life now. Because your next life is an eternal life where nothing is bad. Where else should we go? He's got the words of eternal life. He's the one true Savior. He's the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by Him. He is the beholden Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. (laughs) Where else should we go? When your life is bad and things are hard and things are difficult, those things are real. The Bible doesn't tell us to, to pretend that they're not real. Where else should I go? Only Jesus has the words of eternal life in the gospel. Because only He did this so that we might live. And now I want to do the right thing. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this morning. And thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank You for the fact that He's a great and perfect Savior. Thank You that His work is complete. That He did the work that You gave Him to do. May it cause us to have assurance if we're believers in Jesus. May that motivate us to want to honor You and serve You. And Lord, may we take the words very seriously when Jesus says He gives us a new commandment. That we would love one another and that it would be genuine love and it would be the fruit of the Spirit kind of love who's been given to us. And that we really would look different than we did look because of what Jesus has done for us and what the Spirit has done in us. Encourage us, even further equip us as we have opportunities to talk to others about the sufficiency of Christ and the hope that is found in Him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.